I, I haven't figured it out. I, but I am getting clarity for sure. Um, yeah. Sometimes that clarity is fleeting. And then some mm. days I'm like, oh, I know what to do. I know what I'm doing. Mm. This is, this is, this is, this is it. And then the next day I'm like, wait, what, what was that? Surely I wrote that down. I had, yeah, had yeah. a sentence or figured yeah. it all out. No, no, no. That was the universe joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's it's a mysterious path. Uh, I will you will get no argument from me on the fact that it is weird uh, to be a content creator, um, and it's 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 interesting because uh, there's there's certain paths of e-commerce and 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 monetization paths online that are very set in stone and and like you know you can Google it. It's like this is how it works. But when you are trying to make something about a particular subject that you know maybe that you know that you like to talk about that's a little bit different from what's already out there the moment there's a slight bit of variety everything just goes out the window all over again mm, yep. and that that isn't to say that like you don't end up taking the exact same path like i'm starting a coaching business and it's like it's not like a coaching business is uh you know a new wheel that needs to be reinvented but there, you have to go through every little piece of how a coaching business is built to go, okay, how does this work for the thing that I'm doing? And I'm starting to think of it as an unavoidable complexity. I don't know how many people I've spoken to in the last three years that have told me how they're going to make me rich. And it turned out that they knew, had no idea what they were talking about. Um, that highly intelligent people, highly accomplished people who had made lots of money in the past. When they come across the new thing, it's like, well, oh, no, we're just going to plug it into this model that worked before. And it's like, oh, no, that didn't work out so well. Yeah, well, if you're right. That slight variation, like it's because <clears throat> I do um, lots of work in the cannabis space in Australia. And you'd think that I could just Google, all right, well, what does a... Uh, you know, can industry specialist consultant charge? How do they go about yeah. monetizing what they do? And you can find different scales and, and models for consultancy, but then you just throw in the variation that is cannabis because it's not a, you know, a STEM course. You have, it's all self-directed. It's all specific knowledge mm -hmm. that was gained through curiosity. And so you're trying to um, find the value of the tangible and the intangible. And how do you yeah. actually quantify that? And it's just kind of throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks really and <clears throat> being able to come up with some kind of number that you feel good when you say it. Cause like I've been, I've been hustling since I was like 16. I mm -hmm. had my first like photography business and mm -hmm. Oh, it gave me so much anxiety to give somebody an invoice. Yeah. Like I had, I would just, I would give them the invoice and just wait to see the reaction. And be like, oh, is that too? I can, I can drop that down. I can give you a discount. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They haven't yeah. even said anything yet, dude. Shut up. Oh yeah, yeah. They were just willing to wait a hair longer <laughs> than you were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, oh yeah, for sure. And it's, it's a. Uh, I mean, that piece I'm more and more realizing has a lot to do with who you're hanging out with, because you know a lot of the money stuff is uh, relationships and beliefs. Um, uh, and all all entangled into one big mess and i mean you know the way you grow up affects the price that you want to put on something the you know the, the childhood that you had 
the the house that you live in, you know, all of it, all of it affects the price tag that you put on something. And it, and it has very little to do with the actual thing that you're offering, how much the other person thinks is fair. It's, 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 it's remarkably arbitrary in some ways, like, like super arbitrary. And at the same time, you can't be arbitrary about it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to actually come up with a thing where you're like, no, this makes sense. This is why. And so uh, for me, it's a big piece of that has been who I've been hanging out with. You know, I've been trying to hang out with people that are just, you know, sharp cookies that, that are, uh, you know, really comfortable charging what, what they, they want to charge. And you start to look at them and you go, oh, well, I guess I can do that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, it's such a, I mean, you, you slip into, you know, their, their flow with things and their perspectives and your ideas. Cause you're so right. I've never thought about how significant, um, the, you know, your, your childhood, your life experience conditions are when it comes to you kind of presenting and forming that price, the, the house you live in, the street you live in, the way that you grew up, the way that your parents operated their relationship with money, how that's passed on to you, um, what you actually think it's worth, how you correlate a dollar's worth. You know, if you grew up in a family where your dad was out working his ass off in a labor intensive job in the sun every day, you're going to look yeah. at a dollar differently than a kid that's yeah. dad was a you know hotshot lawyer who oh, yeah. you know, could sit across I, the table I, I, from somebody and, you know, money's just like, oh, whatever. Yeah, I, I mowed lawns as a kid. And what I'm doing now today is, is way harder than mowing lawns. But I, I don't sweat. <laughs> And my family valued sweat. So, so I, I have to like realize that my brain is going to undervalue the thing that I do today. This much higher value, much harder, much higher leverage, much more useful to the people that are getting it from me. But my brain's just naturally going to underweight it. So it has to it has to do the math differently. It has to get new perspectives. I have to think about it differently, and it's hard. Yeah. I wonder how much of the imposter syndrome is just really your your brain having installed a different set of values that now you are trying to operate in contrast to. Like well, I think it's a big piece. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think that's a big piece. I mean, Im- imposter syndrome. You're like. A big, a big part of that is you. You just moved from one world to a different world, right? And it has no, nothing to do actually with the work that you've done, how valid you've gotten to, you know, how valid your your uh, results are. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's just like you were in one world and now you're in a different world, and you're like, well, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> so I must be lying to everybody. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, trying to shift the perspective on what imposter syndrome is, I think is a really important thing because I, I remember going to school and them telling us that we, this, this generation, you're going to have on average six careers in your lifetime. I'm like, I'm not sure how they came up with that figure, but they did. And it appears to be correct. I'm going to have at least six. Like I've been bouncing around so ever since I, you know, had access to the internet. And I was like, well, I can do this and I can do this. And just following that curiosity, building that specific knowledge and wanting to pivot and pivoting when the opportunity arises, but looking at imposter syndrome as this uh, awareness of how much more there is to know 
and that kind of increases this distance between where you are and where you could be, where you should be, where you want to be. But that's a good distance. It means that you're in that state of receptivity. It means that you are learning. It means that you are humble. It means that you will find teachers wherever you go. And so that imposter syndrome just shows you how much more there is to know. And that's, I think, could be more of a benefit than a hindrance. Anytime you meet a person who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know what I know. And I'm pretty stoked with that. I think we'll cut it off here. It's like, okay, well, I feel like your uh, neurons are going to start atrophying now because certainty is dead end for growth. <laughs> I mean, I, I believe it's completely dependent on psychology. So I think for some people, imposter syndrome is gonna will destroy them if they maintain it. And then for others, if they get a touch of imposter syndrome, it'll really help. <laughs> and uh, like, because uh, cause it, it's a matter of like where you are on the mental spectrum. So if you're a person tending towards confidence, if you never feel a bit of imposter syndrome, you're probably gonna go you know, the wrong direction. But if you're constantly questioning everything you do and you feel imposter syndrome on top of it, well, that's just a recipe for a disaster. Um, I think I think the, the routes to working through it are, um, I think it's learned competence and understanding the word humility correctly. So learned competence. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with you have to do understand the word humility correctly before you can do the learned competence. So humility is generally looked on as this thing of, uh, you know, view yourself lower, right? Realize you ain't shit. You know, you, you aren't that special. Remember, you know, there's, there's other people out there. I don't think that's quite right. Um, if you go back to the roots of the word humility, um, the, like, more recent translations say something like low to the ground. But if if you look at the, the actual meaning of it from way back when, it was actually more connected to the ground, as in grounded. And to me, that, that indicates realism, right? And realism, seeing yourself realistically, is to understand that you are a meaningless speck of stardust in an infinite universe of stars that are bigger than you. But also, there are some specks of stardust that are bigger than others. Which means that, you know, you are on a spectrum of accomplishment. And you have done some things that are better than what other people have done. And that's just the way it is. And also, wow, there's an infinite game of how far you could go and how low you could go, right? There's, there's an infinite game, both directions. And I think when you know that, then you can start just looking around and going, okay, where, I am, where am I in this infinite game? Have I accomplished some things? Oh, yeah, I guess I have. Well, now I'm a little bit less of an imposter. Now I know, right? You know, I've done some things. And, and then from there, then you can start playing the learned competence game, right? Where, where you go, okay, well, let me prove to myself that I am not, in fact, an imposter. I don't think you can do that without understanding that it's okay to believe yourself to have done something valid. Right. Uh, because a lot of us at this point, we, we don't even believe that's OK. We think like, oh, I'm supposed to like be humble all the time and like, like don't need a like don't, don't get a big head. Right. Like that's the classic thing. Bear the ego. 
Yeah, yeah. And these narratives, all of these these cliche narratives, they're all designed to offset the worst possible thing that could happen. So don't get a big head is intended to stop people who have the biggest heads from becoming absolute monsters. Because the middle ground of society, the other people like it doesn't really matter. We don't care if they get a big head or not. We just want to make sure that the worst of the worst don't get a big head. And that's why that narrative exists. That's why the narrative of just keep going exists. It's to keep people that are at the bottom from stopping. There are many times when you should give up on something. It'd be a really good <laughs> idea to quit. <laughs> but but we need that mainstream narrative to keep people up from at the bottom from just straight up giving up and stopping. It's like, hey man, like just keep going. Like you gotta try something, right? Keep, just keep going. And so don't get a big head. It's to keep the worst of the worst from getting worse. But when somebody in the middle ground hears that message of don't get a big head, you know, don't get so full of yourself. You know, in other words, you might be a bit of an imposter here. Um, it can be really damaging because we actually have to see ourselves. Uh, in perspective of reality. Like we have to see ourselves realistically. Um, one, because it's, it's healthy where it, it, it boosts our, our morale, right? Like you don't want to think of yourself as, as just, you know, the scum of the earth. You need to think of yourself as having done something and being somewhat worthy. Um, uh, and then the other thing is you have to see yourself in reality because we know the more people try to see themselves in line with reality, the better decisions they're able to make because the better information they have. Which means if you have accomplished something and you think of yourself as an imposter, then you're not seeing reality clearly and you'll make poor decisions. Right? You'll put the wrong price tag on the ticket. Right? You'll, you'll say, ah, I, I know I'm worth X amount. Let me let me cut it down by like 40% because, you know, I'm not that great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, like I used to joke that like, like, like I, I wasn't great at setting my prices. And I was like, yeah, if, if I went to a, a, you know, a company for a, a sponsorship deal and uh, I, I'd say, well, okay, so I've looked at your company and I've looked at what I have to offer you. And I've thought really hard about this and all this would be true. I've thought really hard about this, <laughs> like obsessively thought about it. And it's like, I think that it's probably should be about this price. And this is how it would play out is that hand, I'd, you know, I'd stand over the boardroom and I'd give them that price. And they'd look at it and they'd go, thank you, Mr. Terry. Well, okay, so we've thought about it. And we've decided that, you know, your stuff just isn't quite that valuable. And uh, we don't think that you're going to be able to get the reach that, you know, you said that you have. And we'd like this lower price because yeah. that's called a negotiation. Like, that's just real life. <laughs> but here's the problem is now my response would be, yeah, you're probably right. I'm not that great. Here's a different price. <laughs> that's not useful. <laughs> in fact, that's not useful for anybody. It's not useful for them and it's not useful for me. And that's that's imposter syndrome gone too far, right? Mm. That's not seen reality clearly. You have to know your accomplishments. So like, I think you're right. There, there's a time 
to see a little touch of that imposter syndrome, to feel a little bit of that, because it tests you, right? To feel to feel those doubts, it, it makes you check yourself and go, well, am I all that? You know, I probably should check. But I think it's something that is overpopular in modern culture right now. Mm. And and we could do with a little bit more clarity of, of really seeing ourselves and going, hey, I've done this. It's fairly valid accomplishment. And it's yep. worth something. So, hey, this is what I got. Take it or leave it. I love that. As soon as it starts to, <clears throat> in a tangible way, uh, impact your decision making from a, a value of negative worth, then it's it's certainly time to evaluate that. And going back to that, that definition of humility, it was really interesting because I'm starting to see how many of the terms we use have gone through fairly substantial redefinitions through time. A lot of that to do with the Catholic Church as well. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking to Andrew and Ray from Dualistic Unity, Ray mentioned that the definition of belief before the 13th century was to love, to mm-hmm. hold close, to feel compassion for. And then in the 13th century, that changed to have faith in the absence of proof. And mm-hmm. so that is that's a massive shift in just the way that we view the world and the way that we yeah. interface with our with religion with our beliefs and with ourselves as well so you can believe in something because you love it you can believe in yourself because you want to hold that close because you want to act in its best interests um with with compassion and grace whereas the belief in the absence of proof installs this kind of almost like a reward prediction error with your own capacity, with your own ability. And I think that's where, you know, people do get caught up where they might have this sudden massive influx of imposter syndrome because they've looked at belief in the, maybe not the wrong way, but in a way that doesn't actually serve them in terms of uh, continuing the, the building of their capacity and their abilities because they have an inordinate view of what it means to succeed, of what it means to be devoted or disciplined towards a certain practice or pursuit. And it is hard work. Like you talk about your your family equating sweat with money, sweat with value, sweat with work, but sitting down and thinking that that burns a hell of a lot of calories. You, know, you look at a grandmaster in chess burning 6,000 calories I'm not sure what the number is. I wish I had a young Jamie to pull this up right now, but um, how, what percentage of calories your brain uses compared to your overall system at large. And it's heavily geared (laughs) towards the brain. Yeah. Heavily geared towards the brain. And we, that, that point of leverage as well, because this is another fascinating subject. We are living in this age of exponential leverage where I, have leveraged your work because I watch your videos. I fucking love them, by the way. Like you just say things with such uh, clarity and uh, deliberation that it it cuts deep in a way that uh, I haven't really found anywhere else, which is really special. I think that um, the way that you say things kind of cuts the excuses away. Like it makes you evaluate all right, where have I been, you know, lacking, not showing up? Uh, how can I look at myself and what I'm doing in a more realistic way? Not to bring myself down, not to push myself up, but just to 
be able to develop that kind of objective viewpoint from which I can make better decisions. And part of that better decision-making is realizing the potential excuses that I've been making towards things um, and realizing where I've been propping myself up in this one domain and putting all this effort and attention over there at the same time, ignoring the, the potential deficits I have in other domains. And through watching your content, I made a lot of, I think, sound decisions in recent months, just in who I surrounded myself with, the team that I've been building, um, the way that I ask for help. Um, you, you mentioned in a video a little while ago about being good at everything, whether you, it's it's more effective or efficient to um, realize your weaknesses and work really hard on getting better in those domains, or whether you just go hard as fuck on the stuff that you're good at, and you know from there surround yourself with people that can help you execute, and that people that can help you execute is is how it all works. Because nobody does it alone, and nobody does it all, and the people that think they do are not aware of how much help they've actually received because the conditions exist for any of us to have any of these conversations, have any of these ideas, ambitions, the conditions exist. Like we're not sitting here as this lone star in the universe that is generating things ourselves. We're just connecting dots from information that we've received into this wonderful supercomputer brain. If you think you're doing it alone, you're not being realistic about what's out there. And on the other flip side, it means that everything that you want to do with the ambitions and dreams that you do have, the conditions exist for those to happen as well. And the people exist for you to make those things happen. So to summarize, the way that you speak is clear and concise and prompts a really valuable reflection in today's society that, uh, allows for a fluidity of thought that I think is getting hung up on the snags of things like victimhood, which is a big aspect of, I think, um, a lot of inner turmoil these days and an inability to confront our own truths and something that needs to be spoken about in a way that doesn't instantly trigger that victimhood. Because you're finding that point of receptivity, right? If somebody's not ready to hear it, they won't hear it. And on social media, they can just scroll to the next video. Ooh, that was almost going to be painful. I'll go to the next one. Like, unless you have to be in that state where you are, you want to listen. And it's about saying these things in different ways, finding that pathway to get to that person. Um, some people respond really well to David Goggins calling them, mm. you know, a big fat idiot. And some people will respond to me being very gentle. <laughs> Then, mm -hmm. you know, it's that, that, that multidimensional spectrum and finding the point of like harmonic resonance that allows you to connect with somebody. Thank you. First of all, um, I'm really glad you love it. Uh, I'm really glad that it helps. Um, that always makes me happy. And I think well, I'll start here. I think that an adult is somebody who has gotten to the point where they understand the actions have consequences and then has chosen to accept responsibility for the consequences of their actions. I think that's what an adult is. 
Because you can be an adult when you're 12, and you can be a child when you're 30. And and so far as I can tell, that's the difference. It's that, that one thing. Um, and with that comes inherent realism. Because cause actions and consequences, they play out in the real world, right? It's, it's like you do a thing, and then a thing happens. Like it's, it's one of the coldest, hardest truths that exist. Is if you do a thing, then, then something will happen. <laughs> and, and, and I think that might be the essence of adulthood. And I think we all crave that. I think we all desire to turn into the beasts that could handle that, you know, the, 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 the healthy monsters that can handle something so terrifying as, as actions having consequences. And because I think it's invigorating and I think, I think we're built to handle it. So once we see it, we go, Ooh, yeah, yeah. I want to be that way. I want to do that thing. Like when we, we can really see it, because I mean, when you see you know characters on 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 TV that understand that actions have consequences, they're our favorite characters. We're like, oh yeah, man, that guy there, you know, that girl there, like like she owned it, right? She owned the situation. That it's like this is where we are. If we do this, this will happen. If we do this, that will happen. This sucks. Okay, we're gonna do it. It's like oh, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's what we're into you know cause and effect let's go yeah and so i i think that's a piece of what i want to talk about what i want to do what i try to explore is things that are related to that where it's 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 like let's let's try to be realistic as best we can and then a thing that's tied to that is um, we had an era. I mean, I don't know if this is you. Said, you're from Australia, right? From the states, but I've been. Oh, you're living, from the states. Yeah, maybe back okay. and forth like, for about sixteen years. Okay, gotcha. Like, I don't. I don't know if these things are like worldwide or if it's just like cultural in America. But I know culturally in America, like we had an expression like "Don't judge, man." You know, don't judge. And that was a really popular expression for maybe a decade. Like that was the thing. It's like, don't judge, man. And and there was a there was an important truth inside of that, which is like, you know, don't like arbitrarily uh you know uh condemn people, right? You know, don't don't just, you know, take stupid, dumb, pointless thing that doesn't matter and make it a reason to hate somebody. Don't, don't, don't take something small and make it big. You know, that, that's what don't judge meant in a lot of ways. But then it turned into literally don't judge. <laughs> yeah. And to judge is essentially to decide. You know, to, to go, like, this is good, this is bad. Okay, nothing's good or bad. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> that gets dangerous really quick, you know? And so I think what we actually want is harsh judgment without shame. We want somebody that is tough. 
They can, they can really make a decision. <laughs> and then go... Not even a little bit? You know, it's fine. <laughs> we want somebody to, to say, like, look, dude, you're addicted. Yeah. And, like, I love you. It's cool. Like, whatever. You know. Look, dude, you got some mm. terrible habits that you better fix or you're in deep trouble. And, you know, you could probably fix them. <laughs> you know, you could probably fix them. You'd probably be fine. Or... Look, you are a complete idiot. You're completely, you know, undeveloped in this area. And you know what? You could be better. And when we hear this, <laughs> our posture changes, our emotions change, everything changes. Because we go, oh, there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things could be better. <laughs> and so that's like another piece that I try to think about a lot. When I write, yeah. when I work with clients, when I work on myself, yeah. this is this is how I try to work on myself. I believe this is an aspect of parenting. I believe it's an aspect of parenting yourself. Um, yeah. I, I think it. I think it's a big piece of how we need to move forward in the world. How we treat our friends. You know, it's it's like, look, buddy, you messed up. Still love you. Mm-hmm. And like, don't really mind. I still want to have a beer with you, but but like, hey, I think you messed up. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, I messed up, and you're not gonna kick me out of the tribe, and I'm not gonna starve to death. Okay, cool, right? Like, I, like I can tell you, like, times in my life when somebody I admired told me that I messed up and like gave me love, you know, and I was like. Damn, I can be better. Cool. I'm I'm down with this. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. When when that analysis is <clears throat> delivered wrapped in hope, it enters and, and and comes into us in a in a different way because when that analysis and judgment is mm-hmm. bundled with shame that shame yes. doesn't leave room for self-compassion or self-curiosity. It's just turned into more inner shame. And that shame is just a, a very um, myopic lens through which to view yourself and view the potential of your ability to make alterations and adjustments. If we don't have hope, then we won't do anything. Hope is this very strange um almost like a phenomenon because I, I go back to this study. There's a study with rats and they were trying to quantify hope and they put a bunch of rats in a bucket full of water and there was no way to get out. And they lasted 15 minutes before they succumbed to their efforts. And the next group of rats, they put them in the bucket. And after 13 minutes, they brought them out of the bucket 
and showed them, hey, there's there's a way out. And then they put the rats back in the bucket. And those rats that were shown that there is hope lasted six hours in that bucket. So without hope, 15 minutes, with hope, six hours. And if we extrapolate that and kind of apply it to our own situations, how much further can we go with hope? How much deeper into ourselves can we go with hope? How much deeper can we interface with reality can we go with hope? And that kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of this, which is who you spend the most time with, who you are surrounded by, the people that cast cast shameful judgments, maybe because of their own projected self-inadequacies and insecurities, maybe because they were never given that hope because all of their... Uh, judgments that were passed on to them were given without hope. They were given with shame and yeah, it's an not a great hot bath. Guilt. None of those are effective <laughs> the, tools the, uh, for moving the forward. The rat experiment you know, story I love, and it's such a hefty irony of like through this absolutely abysmal, hopeless experiment that's just it's awful. For you to we realize how truly important hope is. You know, it's it's weird. Living, um, thinking, but, but it, it's true. Like, over the like past hope is a waste really, of energy. really matters. Um, it just is. Unless you can, I think this things in a different way that gives you an insight to move of forward. Realism, then it's hope, a waste of judgment energy. without shame. And and I don't want to overcomplicate shame for the sake of this conversation. No. All I'm talking about, I mean, in terms of shame, I'm talking about like just the simple idea of you're now out of the game. Like that's 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 the core thought that that happens inside of shame. It's like you are unworthy. You're gonna get banished from your tribe as a result of your unworthiness, and you're gonna starve to death. <laughs> game over right that's that's the core shame element is game over and so we want somebody to point out what's wrong without telling us that we're out of the game you know like that's that's about it and that is an innately hopeful experience and that is the thing that happens when we are embracing reality because we're, we're pointing out this very clear thing of like hey look it's this way and uh you sucked and you can be better. Uh, one of my favorite philosophy books of all time um, was The Discovery of Freedom by Rose Wilder Lane. It's a very lesser known book. Um, there's a series that a lot of people know, which is uh, called, it's called the Little House series. The most famous one was The Little House on the Prairie, and it was written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Laura Ingalls Wilder was a... Uh, 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 a settler um, or somebody that traveled west in the American West um, back when the Wild West was the Wild West. And it was, it was just the story of a young girl growing up, uh, traveling farther and farther west and having, having that wild frontier experience. Um, and they're children's books and they're wonderful. Um, but it, it's very interesting because she was a school teacher, which at that time, school teachers were the most educated of the people. Like, like, like they knew the most. They were the, the town library, right? And uh, her mother was a school teacher, and her grandmother was a school teacher, and her great grandmother was a school teacher. It was this tradition of some of the most sharpest minds. And then they traveled west into the most unforgiving territory that existed at that time. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is unforgiving wild land is the most real thing that exists. If you want truth, 
try to survive out in the forest. There, there are no lies in the forest. You don't get to have those. It's, it's just cold, hard. You have food or you don't. You, you have shelter or you don't. This winter is coming. You'd better do something or you're dead. You know, that kind of life. And uh, so it was some of the most educated people who grew up in the most truthful environment that exists. And then that daughter of Laura, Rose, she decided to become a journalist and travel the world. So she had this tradition of education and just cold, harsh reality. And then she traveled all around the world and became associated with the top politicians and leaders of the world of that time. Like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I like, I remember like reading some stories and like, like her name pops up and like, she's like, you know, in the, the conference rooms with the greats of that century, like is nuts. And then she wrote a book called The Discovery of Freedom. And this book has statements like, as long as we live in a world where there isn't enough to eat, there will be war. It's like, it's pretty hard to argue with that one. <laughs> That's pretty truthful. And, and just, just, you know, these cold, hard truths of, of like, like, look, this is, this is how it goes. And it's one of the most adult books I've ever read. It's not a big book. It's not a fancy book. It doesn't have fancy words, but it's adult. And I, I think we all want that. I think we all want more of that. And our fears get in the way. Our fears stop us from being adults. Our fears make us, you know, hide truths because it's like, well, that's scary. And I don't know if it actually will work out. So I'm going to hide it behind a couple layers of my uh, illusions and, and confusion mm -hmm. uh, to, to <laughs> you know, pretend that maybe it'll work out. But if we can combine the cold, hard terror of reality with the very real hope that you can do it, you can, you know, you can learn, you can grow, you can survive, you, you live in a world that's built for you or that you're built for, uh, I think that's one of the most invigorating circumstances that can exist. I, I think that's the thing to strive toward. It makes me think that, you know, there are no lies in the wild, but there are different truths. And oh, yeah. depending on the wild that's in you, it depends on what kind of truths you get to almost inhabit. And yeah. There, there are type of truths that are delivered, and when they deliver, they they are terrifying. Um, you know, encounters with your own mortality, encounters with the mortality of those around you, a true realization of the transience and temporary nature of this fleeting existence. Mm -hmm. Or waking up in the middle of the night being like, fuck, I think I might have wasted my time. I didn't quit when I should have quit. Yeah. And you can, you know, that, that can be spending 38 years in a career you fucking hated. Or it could just be putting that book down because it doesn't interest you. Like being mindful of this transient space we get to inhabit and the currency that is your energy and attention and spending it on things that 
benefit you and the people around you and make that impact of change that at least make the the truths of the wild maybe not easier to bear, but you're stronger for bearing them. Um, there's a little book. It's kind of underground it's called Lord of the Rings. Some people have heard of it. <laughs> not me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's these little characters called the hobbits and, uh, towards the beginning of it, there's these amazing conversations between the hobbit and, um, I want to say it was like Aragorn or it's, 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 uh, he has a couple of names throughout the, the, the book as, as he's this mysterious frontiers ranger guy and then eventually becomes the king uh like you know this ancient lineage and uh but but he he tells this little hobbit that's grown up in the safest place ever he's like you know like there's people dying and fighting all around you so that your village can have the beautiful existence that it does and so that it can be unaware of you know the horrors that exist all around and it's like he goes back to frodo goes on this wild adventure and he gets exposed to those horrors but he goes back to his land he lives a wonderful life in his land and it's like we don't all have to like live in the terror that is you you know the 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 harsh reality of existence like we don't have to live there for some people that's what they're wired for mm-hmm. but for others just having a knowledge of it just knowing hey like there's there's some cold hard truths out there that's enough you know like like he went back to his his hobbit land a a, a enriched individual mm-hmm. right who is able to live a more nuanced life as a result of that knowledge, you know, he could have edgier conversations, you know, he, like, like he could have, you know, he could make edgier, more risky decisions just because he knew the possibilities out there. He had a clearer picture. And, and I think that's, that's maybe, you know, related is, is this like, we, we don't have to live in that cold, hard world, but we have to know it's there. Mm. We have to dip our toes into all the streams, right? Like it's yeah. in order for yeah. any of this to exist, it's, you know, the, there's a polarity to all things. Um, the conditions are built upon opposites and paradoxes. And to live in, you know, a blissful naivety is is a joy sometimes. And I will deliberately mm-hmm. do that when I need to do that. I will deliberately go yeah. through, you know, large periods of time where I will not check the news. I will not look at anything yeah. of the external world because... It's not that I am trying to hide from it. I very much know that it exists. I know that as long as there are people going hungry, there are wars occurring. As long as there are uh, people being raised without love, um, there will be tyrants. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective and from that awareness, I can very happily slip into my own little kingdom and really enjoy my time here. And then when I slip back out into that world, I can... I can look at those truths without letting too many of them in. It's like, you know, that, that quote about 
the ship doesn't sink because of the water around it, but because mm. of that, it yeah. gets in. And there are times where we should really deliberately think about what we are allowing in and what we are allowing out. Yeah. Um, you know, little moments. A, a really simple example of this is in relationships. So in, in relationships, a lot of times the, there is somebody who plays the role of the protector and somebody who plays the role of the protected. And in reality, these things are interlaced, right? And people protect on one subject and get protected on another, right? It's it, couples, you know, trade off on different subjects. But there's there's usually one that's more on the protected end of the side of that spectrum and one that's more protecting. And the person that's protecting doesn't want the protected person to be constantly aware of all of the misery that they're being protected from. Because mm. otherwise, like, what's the point of all the work of the protection? You know, like, if, if I'm keeping you safe, I don't want you constantly thinking about all the dangers out there. Like, that's, that's not fun. Yeah. Because otherwise, like, what am I doing my job for? Right? You know, like, that's that seems like a waste of time. Like now you're just as miserable as I am. <laughs> you know. Do we need a third protector? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But on the other hand, if the person that's playing the role of the protected has no awareness whatsoever that they are being protected, well now that opens up a opportunity for, you know, uh, one, not valuing the other person for the role that they're playing, right? And two, making terrible decisions, you know, you know, misjudging situations because that, that protected person, like, doesn't know how much danger they're in in a particular circumstance, right? So it's, it's like, in, in that context, it's, it's like that protective person, the person that's doing the protection, is, is facing some of those cold realities and, and sheltering the other person a little bit from them. And that's good. And it allows for that, that uh, uh, sort of gentler experience that you described, which is important because it allows for other things like creativity and nurturing and exploration and all most of the beauty of the universe, <laughs> like, like, you know, most good things, you know, it like, it's kind of matters, but, but at the same time, you know, if there's no recognition for what made that possible, then that's dangerous too. Right. Mm. So it's, it's a dance. It's, it's a dance of, of like, yeah, we have to face these cold realities, but also we have to create walled gardens where, you know, they don't have to be. But then inside of that walled garden, we need to know that there's something out there because otherwise we'll wreck our walled garden. We'll, we'll wreck the inside of it, right? So yeah, it, it's, it's a constant dance of awareness. Um, but uh, you, like we all have to, to pick a, a piece of it that we want to look at. And, and work on and for some of us the work is to is to you know create more walls to create more protection and for others is to is to show you know what's out there you know and I, I think we all need a little bit of both but it's incredibly important to play that dance we need a little bit of both because we are a little bit of both you know there is yep. as much as we'd like to think it's so or 
or look at it as so, there is no distinction between all that is out there and all that is in here. To look at this vast swath of reality, everything, and then me in it and think that I am different from everything, that's... <laughs> that's 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 doesn't really make sense just from a statistical perspective that's <laughs> like, silly <laughs> <laughs> hang on a second <laughs> it's, it's, you know being being aware and recognizing all of these parts that we see are also parts within us because we see the world as it is and try as we might to push that stuff away and build that walled garden of uh of eden that wall is more fragile than we might think and the only way to make it strong is to think about it and construct it in a, a, a critical and deliberate manner that allows the outside to come inside. Like any, any walled city is still using the fields for harvest on the outside. They're still using the waters and the glaciers and the mountains. They're still using the animals that roam in the plain and the world beyond that. It's like for that garden to exist, the outside must exist too. They cannot be separate there was no duality to this stuff but recognizing that within all of us is the potential for the good monster and the bad monster and sometimes they're one and the same and sometimes one just needs to be given a hug and told hey you fucked up but i love you let's go get a beer always gotta hug the monster yeah you gotta hug the monster it's very important <laughs> dude thank you so much for for coming on today oh thank you for having me it's it's been a pleasure. Um, I absolutely would love to do this again. That'd be fun. Cool. Like Where can that. people find you? Um, Josh Terry plays across social media. It's my handle everywhere. And then, uh, if you're interested in working me and working with me in various ways, you can go to uh, lifestyle lifestyledesign.me. All right. And the next uh, podcast that we do, we'll dive into more of that lifestyle design because uh, I could use some I could use some designing. I've just entered a, a great new chapter in my life, moved to the opposite end of the country. I live in the jungle now where there are no lies and it's a terrifying environment, <laughs> but it's a great opportunity to to recalibrate and, and really actively design that lifestyle. So let's do this again soon. Wonderful. Look forward to it. Cool. Thanks, man.